This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the National Archives has requested six administrations of presidents and vice presidents to check their files for classified documents. It comes amid calls for change to the government's classification system. The former classification czar joins us to discuss reform. Then, ChatGPT has become very popular. Recently, DISA's chief technology officer said the agency plans to add the generative artificial intelligence to its upcoming tech watch list. We explore that technology's potential dangers and ways to regulate it. And a high-profile U.S. military operation just killed an ISIS leader in Somalia. We'll discuss the terrorist threat and humanitarian crisis plaguing that country. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. Overclassification undermines critical democratic objectives, such as increasing transparency to promote an informed citizenry and greater accountability. That was the Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, talking about the dangers of government overclassification in January. J. William Leonard formerly served as the Director of the Information Security Oversight Office at the National Archives. Bill, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mimi. So who makes the decisions as to what gets classified and what gets declassified? Well, interestingly enough, even though there's millions of people in the government with a security clearance, there's really only a handful, several thousand, who have a, what's known as original classification authority. Those individuals designated usually by physician have the authority to actually determine what is classified information. Anyone then with a security clearance who then uses that same information in another product, another document, or what have you, they're obligated to carry forward that classification decision, and that's known as derivative classification. So how Most, does, uh, so sorry, I was going to ask you, how does declassification work? So normally uh, a, a data or event is established when, when information is originally classified, a data or, or event is established at which point it will become declassified. If a data or event is not known at that time, then it'll be up to the original classifier or whoever uh, assumes that authority at some future day to determine when that information can become declassified. So can you put the numbers into perspective for us about how many classified documents are there? Well, I think nowadays in the age of uh, computers and what have you, I, I, I'm not too sure anyone really knows at this point in time. And that's and that's part of the problem. Uh, when I uh, headed up the Information Security Oversight Office, we attempted to try to track the number of classification decisions, both, both original and derivative, and report on them annually. Uh, it's become impossible to do that now because, quite frankly, there is just too much classified information within the government and it's so easy to uh, replicate it on uh, computers, on printers and what have you, it's, it's, it's a near impossible task. And there's also something called classified spillage, which I would imagine is, is relatively easy for that to happen. Yes, that's a situation where um, no normally, um, uh, erroneously, 
or, uh, or, or due to inattention, someone can introduce uh, classified information, for example, into an unclassified email system or onto an unclassified computer. And uh, that can cause all sorts of problems then in terms of attempting to uh, remove that classified information from the uh, email system and, and to scrub it and, and what have you. So now that we're well into the digital age, how, how do you think the classification system needs to be updated and reformed? Th that is the number one challenge that we have today. The, the classification system we work with today is really a product of World War II. It grew out of the Manhattan Project. And it really has not changed significantly in the 80 some odd years since then. And uh, the, the ability to, to uh, create and replicate and store and produce information has been revolutionized, obviously, in the intervening decades, but yet the system we have for classification has not caught up. Uh, that is, uh, I think, the single biggest contributor as to why the sheer volume uh, of classified information has, quite frankly, gotten out of control, as we've seen in the recent news. Uh, it's uh, even though our most senior leaders have a difficulty keeping track of uh, the classified uh, secrets. And what do you think are, are the impacts of overclassification on the federal government, on the perception of the government? Uh, there's, there's two impacts. Um, number one, uh, the, the challenge is, is that there truly is exceedingly sensitive information that requires to be closely held. And the problem is when you introduce into the system and, and, and intended to protect that very sensitive information, when you introduce less sensitive information, it degrades the value, it degrades the importance of that classification marking, and, and individuals then make their own determination in terms of what's truly sensitive and what's not. The other challenge, though, is, is that when you have information introduced into the classification system, you automatically restrict the dissemination of that information uh, further within the government. And that ultimately leads, when you think about it, to imperfect decisions that are being made because when you when you classified input or you classify the decision-making process, you're cutting yourself off from alternate sources of information, which almost invariably lead to faulty decisions. Uh, the, the early history of this of the 20th of uh, the 21st century with the uh, uh, controversies about uh, leading up to the war in Iraq and Bin Laden determined to strike in the U.S. Imagine if that document had become known uh, to the general public uh, before September 11th. History, as we know it, would uh, quite frankly be very different today. And Bill, what role does the, the National Archives play in document classification, specifically the role of the Information Security Oversight Office? Uh, th that office, which I headed uh, in the George W. Bush administration, has the responsibility to oversee the entire executive branch-wide uh, system for classifying and declassifying information. It's a relatively small office with a relatively small staff, but it has a significant authority in terms of overseeing agency uh, actions and compliance with the president's direction, which is set forth in, uh, in an executive order. All right. Well, sorry. Because that's ultimately what classifiers do. They are exercising the president's authority 
uh, when they classify information. And so it's very important to ensure that that authority, that delegated authority is properly used. All right, Bill, thanks so much for joining us on the program. My pleasure, Mimi. Up next, ChatGPT is massively popular, but it's also cause for concern among some experts and lawmakers. We discuss ways to regulate the growing technology. We'll be right back. ChatGPT has quickly become one of the most popular tools on the internet. Professionals are using it to write business emails, students are using it to write essays, and people are even turning to it for advice. But there's also the potential for bad actors to use the AI program for malicious purposes. David Hickton is the founding director of the University of Pittsburgh Institute for Cyber Law, Policy and Security. David, welcome to the program. Thank you. So for anyone that might still be unfamiliar, how does ChatGPT work? Well, it's basically an internet tool. And for most people, probably best way to visualize it, it's the next frontier after Google search. And uh, it has artificial intelligence embedded within it. And so it's very exciting. It can do a lot of things. Uh, another way to look at it is like a, uh, an enhanced chat box. So what are some of the ways it can be misused? Well, in my world, for example, I teach right now. So everybody in education is worried about people using it uh, to write essays. Um, and, you know, the original ownership of, of uh, academic thought uh, can be stolen by someone using ChatGBT. In my former life as a United States attorney, and you know, one of the leaders in the, the world of cyber law enforcement, it can be used, for example, to create malware, to hack people. So uh, while it's very exciting and has tremendous potential, uh, one of the things I'm concerned about based on my background is things we need to worry about. Are there any regulations currently in place to um, prevent some of the things that you talked about? I mean, you know, hacking, it could also be used for other crimes, for terrorism even. Well, it's only been out for two months, so the answer is no. And we need to make a distinction between sort of hard regulation and something that a lot of the scholars talk about, which is soft law, uh, where we get involved in voluntary uh, programs and some compliance programs that may be able to be put in place much quicker and may not have the full force of enforcement, but give us some of the benefits. One of the things that's happened rather quickly is one of the founders of ChatGBT has put a detection tool out there, which would allow um, sort of a professor to determine whether a student had actually written an essay or a final exam, or maybe it had been used, uh, maybe it had been composed by ChatGBT. Which is definitely good, but it's not foolproof. foolproof. Um, no, it's not. It's so you not could full. get you could get accused of of cheating when you actually didn't. Right, and 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 one of the things about artificial intelligence, at the opposite end of the spectrum, it can make spectacular mistakes. So this is not a panacea for, for you know, sort of the next generation, but it is just such an exciting, uh, transformative development, and uh, you know, it has the potential to be very very helpful to us. But I think when we talk about regulation of all of tech, uh, and we did a big study at Pitt Cyber on uh, algorithms used by government, we have to first talk about transparency. We need the public to know 
about this tool and we need to know its various uses. And then when we talk about transparency, uh, after we're aware of the tool and, and, and the impact, then we have to talk about what are the impacts that are negative and how we can harness them. So David, what do you, how do you respond to critics that would say, you know, regulation stifles innovation and that it allows our adversaries to get ahead of us in the technology? It's a very fair debate uh, and I understand it. And I don't think anybody wakes up every morning and says, boy, what can I regulate today? Uh, I think most regulation comes from abuse and problems. And uh, I think that as long as we do this uh, sort of with goodwill and we look at these technological changes uh, fairly, uh, regulation can, can be uh, an enhancement to the technology. That's how I see it. And the European Union's AI Act is currently under consideration there. Are there any regulations that the U.S. could take note of and, and use? Well, I look to Europe a lot. Whether you talk about data privacy or regulating AI, uh, we are uh, sort of American-centric in our thinking, but the fact is in the world that I live in, we can learn a lot from the Europeans. And we talked about, uh, you know, like OpenAI, which are the creators of ChatGPT, releasing a detection tool. What other responsibilities do those private companies have? Um, are, they, are they doing anything to self-regulate? Well, that's a big debate that goes beyond this tool. And I think that uh, the tech community has come to be aware that, for example, the misuse of social media and the spawning of disinformation, which is a huge problem in and of itself, uh, is the result of the failure of responsible self-regulation by tech creators. So uh, I think, and I'm, I'm hopeful, that some of the problems we saw with Facebook and uh, uh, other social media tools uh, will be a learning experience with regard to you know, artificial intelligence, the whole class of generative artificial intelligence. I think we're all in this together, and I don't think anybody really wants to restrict the next frontier, uh, but I do think that we need to be mindful of some of the problems of these, uh, of these improvements. All right, David, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you very much for having me. Coming next, we'll examine U.S. involvement in Somalia in light of a military raid that killed several terrorist operatives. Stay with us. U.S. military forces recently killed a senior Islamic State leader and 10 other fighters in Somalia. That followed a series of deadly strikes targeting the Al-Qaeda-affiliated group, Al-Shabaab. Bill Raggio is a senior fellow and editor at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Bill, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to join you. So remind us why the U.S. military is involved in Somalia and what's the strategy? The U.S. military is involved in Somalia in order to prevent the country from falling under jihadist control. Shabaab, which is Al-Qaeda's branch there, is um, controls about 40% of the territory in southern and central Somalia. The Islamic State also has a small presence there. Um, Shabaab and Al-Qaeda, their, their overall goal is to establish a global caliphate. And to do that, they try to take country by country. If you think about Afghanistan, that's exactly what Al-Qaeda's ally, the Taliban, did there. And Al-Qaeda now has safe haven. And that's what they're attempting to do in Somalia. So the U.S. 
government, the U.S. military strategy is to, it's basically to keep a lid on this jihadist problem. They're supporting the Somali, Somali government and the Somali National Army, which is attempting to clear Shabaab from some areas in central and southern Somalia. They la they'll launch drone strikes or airstrikes um, while partnering with Somali forces. But the U.S. has a limited number of forces in country, about four to 500 troops. And uh, this isn't really, in my opinion, a strategy for victory. It's really, again, to keep a lid on this problem because as we've seen in Iraq and in Afghanistan, um, in other countries, it is these weak countries like Somalia are very difficult. When they, it's difficult for them to hold ground against these jihadist groups. They how, have limited resources. How closely affiliated is Al Qaeda and Al Shabaab? I mean, is Al Shabaab getting funding? Are they getting weapons? Are they getting direction? Shabaab is a what it's what's considered a branch or affiliate of uh, of Al Qaeda. It is they are they are um, closely linked. The leader of Shabaab is in the line of succession for al-Qaeda's leadership. Um, he's also a member of their central committee. They exchange uh, resources, money, and um, intelligence, and training, and individuals back and forth. So yeah, it's it, there's a lot of attempts to disconnect the dots between the affiliates and what's called core or central al-Qaeda. But when you, when you get down to it, they are in, uh, intricately linked. So describe that recent uh, military raid in Somalia. It killed an Islamic State leader. Explain the significance of his death. Yeah, this was a unique. The U.S. military actually launched a special operations raid. They used ground forces, and this was in northern Somalia. The Islamic State has a small cadre. It's basically a support cell for the rest of Africa. And the individual that they targeted, Bilal al-Sadani, he, he used to be an al-Qaeda leader, and he defected to the Islamic State. He um, was a key facilitator for raising funds and distributing funds to al-Qaeda's branches, not just in Africa, but into Afghanistan and into the Middle East. Um, he and I believe it was two of his, uh, his compadres were killed in that attack. Um, the U.S. would also have gathered intelligence from this as well. So it's a significant raid. And the U.S. military also targeted al-Shabaab in two recent strikes. Describe what happened. Yeah, so these strikes, when the U.S. is targeting Shabab, almost every time, unless it's a counter, what they call a counterterrorism strike, these target leaders or operatives of the group, but these two strikes are what, they, what the U.S. calls defensive strikes. When the Somali military is engaged with Shabab on the ground, remember, Shabab isn't just a terrorist group, it has an army, and that's what the U.S. military is trying to, to help the Somali government fight. And so when the Somali forces come, on, come in contact and they're in trouble, the U.S. will back them up. And these, so these two drone strikes killed, I believe it was somewhere around 40 individuals, uh, Shabaab fighters, in both of the strikes. So tell us about the, the evolution, Bill, of U.S. operations in Somalia over the past few years. Yes, yeah, so President Trump withdrew. The U.S. has had about somewhere around a thousand over oh, historically the u.s had about 800 to a thousand troops inside somalia they were launching partnering with somali forces on the ground gathering intelligence and then in 2020 president trump decided to withdraw all u.s forces and conduct with uh, over the horizon operations this was wildly unsuccessful shabab gained significant ground and president biden um, earlier this year put back in about 400 of those troops However, they're confined to the bases. They're not conducting operations um, directly. They're really just, they're involved in gathering intelligence and they will 
um, conduct the targeting of Shabaab, but not directly. So this is very dangerous because if there are civilian casualties, the U.S. might be getting bad information from the Somali forces. I want to ask you about the humanitarian crisis going on there because almost half of Somalia's population faces food insecurity, in some cases acute food insecurity. Is the U.S. able to get food aid to the affected populations? Yeah, so th th Somalia is entering its sixth year of drought. Tens of thousands are thought to have died during this time. It, and yet it has, and there isn't officially a famine, hasn't been declared. They're on the cusp of it. And the U.S. has provide, provided millions. Um, they're trying to get European countries and other donor nations on board. I believe the U.S. is providing somewhere around 80% of the uh, famine aid to Somalia. Um, it's significant. Um, of course, the U.S. could supply more, but with the war in Ukraine, this has really um, shifted the focus from a lot of donor countries to because a lot of money is being spent, particularly by Euro European countries, to arm and um, you know and help the Ukrainians also having their own humanitarian crisis. And now, keep in mind, there's almost two million people are on the precipice of uh, of uh, starvation in, in inside of Somalia. And almost half of them, about nine hundred thousand, are estimated to be in areas under Shabab control. So, for those that are in those areas under Shabab control, it's really difficult for the U.S. to get that aid to them. All right, Bill. Well, we'll continue to watch it. Thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. Have a great day. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers 
as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.